John chapter 4, verse 3. Um, I'm going to read quite a bit of, of Scripture today. And I, I was setting, a buddy of mine actually teaches at a college, and a while back he asked me to come teach, and one of the professors there was talking about homiletics, and I never even got to go to Bible college. But um, he was sitting there teaching. It's cool I get to teach in a college, though, right? <laughs> I thought, how funny is that? And I'm sitting there, and he's teaching, and he says, don't ever read more than about five verses of Scripture in a sermon because you'll bore people. And I thought, man, I hope that's not true. So I hope when I read all these verses, you don't shut down or get bored on me. You won't get bored from the reading of God's Word, will you? That won't bore any of us, right? John chapter 4, verse 3. I'm, I'm going to read this to you. It's a story that a lot of us are familiar with, but I'll share with you as we end the sermon of why I think it's an amazing story. And he left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. Now, Jesus didn't really need to go through Samaria. There were other routes. The reason he needed to go through Samaria, it, didn't, it wasn't because that was the only route to get there. It was because he had an appointment with a woman at a well. She didn't know she had an appointment. The disciples didn't know that he had an appointment, but Jesus knew that he had an appointment with this woman at the well. So he came to the city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now, the city Sychar, we've got a city back home in Tennessee called Lynchburg, and it's famous for something. Does anybody know what it's famous for? Jack Daniel's whiskey. I don't know how you people know that, but okay. And you knew it quick, too. It was like, Jack Daniel's whiskey. <laughs> yes. Well, this city was actually named after a strong drink they had. And the name of that drink was Sakar. They literally, this drink was so famous that they literally named the city after the drink. And as a matter of fact, it also had... Uh, a name that people kind of gave it as a nickname for the city. They called this city the Town of Drunks. Town of Drunks. Kind of like some other cities I know. Now Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. And a woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. And I've got to stop right here because I've got to point out another fact. If you had to guess what time of the day the sixth hour is, what time would you guess? You'd think six o'clock. I, I, that's a good guess. But it's actually noon, high noon. No, it's just noon. But it's noon, 12 o'clock during the day. And you say, what's so significant about that in the story? I think it's significant to go back and get all the facts and go back and understand the customs of the day. And that day, going and gathering the water, if you were an ordinary household, now if you were rich, you'd have servants do it. But if you were just common folk in that day, it was the woman's job to go and gather the water. You didn't have indoor plumbing, so you had a water pot, and it would hold five gallons of water. Now, you got to think, full, that's over 40 pounds. And she would have to leave her home early every morning. And why do you think all the women went early in the morning out there in the Middle East? Beat the heat, one reason. Of course, another reason was is you needed that water to wash and to cook, and you had to bring that water back to the home. And all the women would go. It was a custom. They'd all go early in the morning, and it was a social event. I've always thought it's odd that they didn't make the men get the water. I've actually sowed this passage to my wife and said, see, you should be taking the trash out, not me. The Bible says you have to do these daily chores, these duties. 
But, but the women would go. So here's the question. If all the women in the city, and we understand that all the women in the city went early in the morning, and it just makes sense, get the water for the day and beat the heat while you're at it. And you can also socialize and get to know other women in the city. Why would this woman go during the middle of the day? Why would she go at noon? Most of you probably already know the answer. Shame. Shame. Shame will cause you to hide from other people. Shame will cause you not to want to look other folks in the eye. Shame will cause you to isolate yourself. Verse 8, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you being a Jew ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And Jesus answered and said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink. You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do I get that living water? That's a good question, isn't it? Where do we get living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered and said, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of that I shall give him shall never thirst. The water will spring up into everlasting life. Verse 15, And the woman said to him, Sir, give me now this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. And Jesus says to her, Go call your husband and and bring him back here and come to me. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You've well said I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. And that you truly spoke. And the woman said to him, I perceive thou art a prophet. <laughs> and then she asked a question. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you Jews say in Jerusalem is the place one ought to worship. Now I need some congregation participation. Will you, will you go along with me? If we could use one word, one word, we're only going to use one word to describe this woman, and we're all honest, what one word would we use to describe this woman's character, describe her life, up until this point before meeting Jesus. Anybody want to give me a word? Lost? Another word? What? Hurt? Another word? Adulterous? Another word? Unfaithful? Sinner? Those are the words we would use to describe her, right? I mean, because we've heard about this before. We know the story, right? I mean, preacher, couldn't you have found this is an amazing story? We all know the story. I mean, probably here's a scenario of her life. We've got it figured out, right? The scenario of her life probably is that, you know, she, she's a teenager, and she goes down to the public square, and, and all of a sudden she sees, you know, what? Shekekayim. And Shekekayim's on his low rider. They didn't have cars. It's a short-legged donkey. And he's riding through town, <clears throat> and there he is on a short-legged donkey, and she sees him, and, and he looks over at her, and he says, Shalom. And that's like saying, how you doing? And, and he, she says back, peace to you. And they get together, and they're in love for about a year. But then she sees his buddy Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel and her start making eyes to each other. And they said, let's meet at the threshing floor. And Zerubbabel and her commit adultery, and so on and so on and so forth and so forth, until she goes through five men, and now she's living with a guy, and they're not even married. Or what if that's not her story at all? What if we've misjudged her? 
What if the commentary in your Bible is wrong? And what if how we've misjudged her because we didn't look at all the facts that have always been there in our Scripture? What if that's the same way we do others in our church, in our community, our neighbors, at the workplace? I want to show you why this is an amazing story. It's an amazing story because it's not the story that everybody thinks it is. Let's pray together, and then I'll show you why. Lord, make me a better preacher than I really am. God, use the Word of God today. Use your Scriptures to impact our hearts and to speak to us and to change us. In Jesus' name, amen. I know the first thing you're thinking. You're thinking, well, she come at noon, and all the women came early in the day, and that shows she had shame. Let me tell you something about shame. It's a funny thing. Shame is not always the result of what you've done. Shame can also be the result of what someone else has done to you. We have over 100 people in our HOPE program. We actually have four centers now. I have two women HOPE centers for people that struggle with alcoholism and drug addiction, and they come and live with us. When I opened our first center there in McEwen, Tennessee, we had a young lady come in by the name of Jessica. Jessica later would come to work for us and become a leader, but she had come into our center, and every time you'd see Jessica, she'd always have her head down. Jessica would never look you in the eyes. And one time I, I talked to Jessica, and I said, girl, get your head up. And she looked up at me, and tears just came down her eyes, and she said, Pastor, you don't know the things I've done. You don't know what's happened to me. And I said, well, you don't have to tell me, but let me just pray for you. After Jessica would come on staff later, she would share a story and why she had so much shame. When she was 15 years old, a man that her mother knew, a friend of her mother's, he kidnapped her. He took her into her home, and he'd only give her so much food every day. And he would rape her repeatedly. And he would do things to her that caused her to feel like a piece of meat. Jessica felt like she had no worth because of what had been done to her. And somehow in there, Jessica had even started blaming herself for her own kidnapping and for the acts that this man made her commit, because if she didn't commit these acts, he would physically beat her and threaten her life and threaten the life of her family. Isn't it amazing that Jessica would isolate herself? Isn't it amazing that when all the other girls would gather together and talk, she'd go and sit in the corner of her room, she'd be at the sixth hour? And she had shame, but her shame was not a result of her doing. One of my close friends' name is Nancy Alcorn. She runs something called Mercy Ministries. I preach there every year. She's got a gala coming up that I'll be attending. Nancy has homes, and she helps young teenagers, girls from 13 to 28. In the Nashville home, it's mainly girls from 13 to 22. A lot of people give to it. Joyce Meyer's a big supporter of it. And I'll go there, and I'll preach to about 50 girls, and a lot of these girls were taken. Uh, they've been sexually trafficked. One young lady there, her own father, her own daddy. I got three little girls. I can't imagine this. But he took a van and took the seats out of the van and put a mattress back there. And he'd handcuff his own daughter naked in the back of that van and drive from, from different sub subdivisions. And he would allow men in that subdivision to get in the back of that van with his nude daughter 14, 15 years old at the time, and they would get in there and do whatever they wanted to do with her for 20 minutes for a $100 bill if they could give a $100 bill and put it in the hand of her father. This young lady, when she came into Mercy for the first year, she hardly even spoke to people. 
Now she's married and got a husband, and she's one of the speakers for Mercy Ministry. But I'm telling you, her shame was real. Nancy's told me, Josh, she, she wouldn't even look people in the eye. And I've been there, and I've seen it. I've seen 13-year-old girls pregnant by a family member's baby. They won't even look you in the eye. Why? Shame. But their shame is not a result of what they've done. It's not a result of a decision they made. It's a result of a decision someone else made and what someone else has done to them. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, oh, wait a minute, I still got you. She's from Sychar, man, town of drunks. Can any of us help where we're from? We can't even help who our family is. How many of you got that crazy family that when somebody says, what's your name? My name is Josh Hanna, and the next thing you do is explain. Now, I'm not kin to those Hannas over there, or don't judge me by my family. Does anybody else ever do that? Yeah, every time I'm Josh Hanna, and they'll say, is your uncle so-and-so? And I'll go, yeah, but let me go ahead and explain. I love my uncle, but I'm not like him. And I have to go into this five-minute explanation because none of us can help where we're from, right? The town of drunks was known for the men who were the drunks, not the women. But here she is living in a town of drunks, and I know... You're going, well, she had five husbands. We got you, dude. But do you? Because could she have really been an adulteress? And that day, could a woman in Samaria who went by the Torah, the Samaritans went by the Torah, the five, first five books of the Bible. They practiced Judaism. They believed in the law of Moses. And that day in that culture, could a woman really commit adultery on not just one husband, not just two husbands, but five husbands and get away with it? Let's go back and see what the Bible says, right? John chapter 8, verse 3. The scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when, when they had set her in the mist, they said to him, Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that she should be stoned. And that day, if a woman was caught in adultery, they would grab her by the hair of her head, drag her to the public square, and throw rocks at her one by one until she took the last breath she would ever take, and her dead body would lay there in the public square for everyone to see she was a no-good adulteress. That's what they did in that day. And you're telling me this woman got away with adultery on five different husbands? Doesn't add up. Just doesn't add up. By the way, can I tell you something, though? A man could commit adultery on his wife, and he didn't get any trouble for it. It was a double standard. A man could bring a concubine, or he could even marry another wife. He could sleep with a woman, a, another woman. As long as it wasn't the woman of another man's wife, as long as it wasn't another man's wife, he didn't get any trouble for it. And you go, okay, 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 okay. So she divorced him first, and then she remarried the other guy. Did women have the right to divorce him that day? I thought Deuteronomy 24, I thought this is what it said, verse 1, and I'm quoting here. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, he writes her a certificate of divorce and gives it to her and sends her from his house. Notice it said his house. You say, well, what does that mean? Women didn't have rights. Listen, until 1920, women couldn't even vote in America. And one of the freedoms that we experienced by living in this country when the pilgrims came over to America from England, it wasn't just religious freedom. And that day, a woman couldn't even divorce her husband. Women couldn't divorce their husbands until 1850-something in England. I go over there all the time. We're planting a church there. I know a little bit about their history. 
So if, if in the 1800s a woman couldn't divorce her husband, but by the way, a man could divorce his wife, you're telling me in this male chauvinistic, male-dominant society that a woman could just tell her husband to get lost? No. Read the law of Moses. Read the Old Testament. Read Exodus. He can't, couldn't do it. But the husband could throw the wife out of the house. It said if he found anything displeasing about her. You know what that means? A flaw. If her feet stink, put her out. If her breath's bad, put her out. Or, getting a little more serious, if she was barren. If you married a woman and she wasn't producing you children, you could throw her out of the house and say, I'm giving you a certificate of divorce. And notice it said his house because it wasn't her house. And that day there was no alimony. There was no child support. You didn't even get to take the children with you as a woman. The children belonged to the man You got put out of the house with no shelter. You got put out of the house with no money. And you got put out of the house with no children because those children belonged to him. How would you have liked to have been a woman back in those days? That's what the Bible says. Verse 2, and if after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man, her second husband, well, if he dislikes her, let him write her a certificate of divorce, give it to her, and send her from his house. Or if he dies and her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after that she has been defiled. Catch this. Two men found a fault in her. She didn't commit adultery. She wasn't immoral. But there was something about their wife they didn't like, and they divorced her and put her out. And the whole community is looking at her, and they're saying she's defiled. There's something wrong with her. She's an outcast. You're starting to figure out why she'd have went to the well at the sixth hour of the day. Are you starting to see that her shame wasn't a result of any action that she took? It was what had been done to her. Isn't this an amazing story? It's an amazing story. Josh, I'm still not sure. Well, then i got a question for you. Why would a woman who was so sexually immoral, why would a harlot, why would an unfaithful, unsubmissive, rebellious adulteress be so concerned with spiritual matters? Why would she look at Jesus and say, this is our father Jacob's well? Why would it be our father? Why would she ask, where's the right mountain to worship on? A lot of people say, oh, she's turning the subject. She's changing the subject. I don't think so. Here's what I think she's doing. I think she said, Lord, I perceive thou art a prophet. And when she realized this is no ordinary man, she had a question she'd been wanting to, to ask for a long time. I want to worship God in the right place. I want to worship God in the right way. Which mountain is it? Please tell me how I can worship God. I think she's gotten a bad rap. There's even more to the story that maybe you didn't think about. I didn't read the verses, which makes another point. There's always more to the story. I tell our staff all the time, we got about 50 staff members between Hope Center and church. And a lot of times, especially the new guys on staff, they'll come and say, well, here's what happened. And I'll say, slow down. Put, put, put the six-shooter up. Don't shoot anybody yet. You've only heard one side. There's always this side, that side, and the truth. There's always more to the story than you see or you know. Because if this woman's an adulteress, Why would the whole city come out based on her word that Jesus was the Messiah? Do you really think the men in that city 
not just in that day, but in any day, in our day, would run out, the whole city would run out to meet the Messiah, and they would believe he's the Christ because of the word of a prostitute? No. John 4, 28, And the woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, Come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And then they went out of the city and came to him. And many of the Samaritans believed in him. Verse 39, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. Because of this woman's word, all the city runs to meet Jesus? I want to ask you another question. What one word would you use now to describe this woman? Would it be different than the words we used in the beginning? And by the way, no judgment on anybody that said unfaithful or adulterous. That was the word I used. But God led me to go here a few weeks back and said, I want you to reread it. And I kept reading it saying, God, I don't see anything I've never, I've never seen before. And then the Holy Spirit, just in my heart, began to ask me, could a woman commit adultery in that day and get away with it? And I said, no, Lord. Could a woman divorce her husband? I said, I know. I know the Mosaic. I, I, I've studied the, the law of Moses. I study the Bible. I know she couldn't. And then the Holy Spirit said to me, you sure? You sure she was unfaithful? Are you sure she was an adulteress? And so I want to ask you, are you sure now? What one word would you use now to describe this woman? Go. Yell it out loud. Huh? Victim. Yes, sir. What's another word? Broken. What, 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 what's another word? Rejected. Maybe let me give you another word. Godly. Doesn't that blow your mind? It's an amazing story. Three things we get from this story. Number one, number one, be careful when judging because you might not have all the facts. <laughs> be careful when you're judging other people because you might not have all the facts. Now, let me say something here real quick. I'm not saying you shouldn't judge. I know people post that on the Internet. You know the most, uh, the most quoted verse in the United States of America today? Matthew 7, judge not that you be not judged, for with measure you meet, it be measured back to you. Uh, you see it on Facebook all the time, don't you? Bible says don't judge. Actually, if you really want to get down to it, right after Jesus says that in Matthew 1 through 5, guess what else Jesus says? He says, watch out for for what? He said, watch, don't give what's holy to the dogs or cast your pearl before swine. I read that one day and went, wait a minute, Jesus, you just said don't judge. Now you're calling people dogs and pigs. You say it doesn't make any sense. Paul's judging a man in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Who are those that are on the outside? Sinners, the world. Paul said, what do we got to do with judging sinners? By the way, fisherman what? Fish, right? Painter, what does he do? Paints. Sinners, what do they do? What would you judge them for? <laughs> They're already sinners. Do you not judge those who are on the inside, Paul said, but those who are on the outside, God judges. Here's what Paul's saying. We're to judge those on the inside. The church gets it backwards. We want to judge movie stars. We want to judge uh, Snoop Dogg. We want to judge all these other people in the world. When the Bible says don't judge them, 
They're lost. They, they're not held accountable by God's word. They never made Jesus the Lord of their life. You, you, you got to judge those inside the church, not those outside the church. I'll prove it to you. The Bible says in Matthew 18, if you see a brother committing a sin, what do you do? Go to him and him what? Alone. If he won't hear you, what do you do? Go back and get two or three what? Witnesses. And if he still won't hear you, bring it for the leadership of the church. Why? Because you love them and you're trying to help them. Galatians chapter 6. If, if you see someone overtaken in a trespass and a sin, what do you do? Go to them in a spirit of gentleness. Trying to what? Restore them. See, I, I just wanted to be clear because I didn't want you to walk out of here going, well, Pastor Josh said don't judge, and he confirmed that's what the Bible says. Even in Matthew 5, you said Jesus said judge not. Can I, can I read that to you real quick? Is this okay? Everybody good? Matthew 7, 1 through 5. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you judge, you'll be judged. And with the measure you use, it'll be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but consider not the plank in your own eye? And how can you say, brother, let me first remove the speck from your eye and look at plank as in your own eye? Hypocrite, let me first remove the plank from your own eye. Then listen to this. Then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Jesus started out by saying, don't judge, but he ended it by going, get the speck out of your brother's eye. Wait a minute. You mean I'm supposed to get the speck out of his eye? Yes. But Jesus gave us a process. Who do you say judge not to? The Pharisees. Because they had a vigilante justice way of judging. They were like people down in the Old West. And if Ma Smith had one of her cattle stolen, they would get Black Jack, who they thought to be the corporate, and they'd string him up on an oak tree. And three days later, they'd find out that, you know, Jack Lightning was actually the one that took the cow, and they've done hung the wrong man. And Jesus looked at the Pharisees and said, Stop! Quit judging. Judge not. Don't judge this way anymore. And Jesus said it's process. Number one, here's what you need to know. However you judge people is how God will judge you. How do you want to be judged? I want God to have all the facts. I want him to gather all the evidence. And after he's heard all sides of the story and he knows the truth, I want him to show me some grace. <laughs> I want mercy. And that's how you should judge others. And then, and then what does he say? He goes on from there and says what? He says, and why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye? That's a good thing to talk about when judging. Why do you care? Why? Do you care because you're jealous? you care because you're bitter? you care because you're hurt? Do you care because you're angry? Or do you care because you love them? In other words, you got to ask why. What place is my judgment toward them coming from? Is it coming from a place of love, compassion, and concern? Or is it coming from the opposite? I've got to look in my own heart, right? You with me? And consider the plank in your own eye. you got to consider this, that you've got your own faults. And that we all have the propensity to be harder on others when it comes to their faults than we do on ourselves. You believe that? David. David. The prophet comes to him and said, a rich man. And there was a neighbor over there and and the rich man took the one lamb the poor man had, even though he had a thousand lambs, and made lamb chops with them and had a feast for a guest. And he said, what do you think we ought to do to the rich man, David? And David, so angry, he said two words, kill him. And the prophet Nathan looked at him and said, you aren't the man. How did David feel about it then? Psalm 51, please God, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. 
He begged for God's mercy. Why? We've always got to consider, no matter what somebody does to us, we've probably done it too. I may have not done it to you, but I've done it to somebody. And if I haven't done what you've done, I've done something equally as bad before God. Come on, y'all with me? Now you remove the plank from your own eye. In other words, you search your own heart and repent of any sin the Holy Spirit shows you. Now you can go and remove the speck from your brother's eye. I didn't plan on preaching that. That's free. But I wanted you to know we are supposed to hold each other accountable in the church. Can I get a big amen right there? Right? But this woman was a Samaritan and she was outside. And all these people are judging are not based on the facts. Let me say this real quick now that I chased a rabbit for a minute. <clears throat> when judging, be careful. Okay, let me say this. You may know how they're acting. You may know what they're doing or what they said to you. So you may know the what, you may know the how, but what you never know, you don't know the why. I was at one of our centers one day. I stopped by to do a Bible study. I showed up at this particular Hope Center, and nobody there really knew who I was because it's pretty big now. And I come in there, I did a Bible study with the guys, and I said, don't tell them who I am because then I can't just be, you know, a person in the room. Don't, don't tell them I'm the president or anything. Just tell them a pastor is going to come by and do a Bible study. So I came by, I did a Bible study, and um, there's one guy in the Bible study, and he's being a real jerk. He won't pay attention. He's slamming his book. And finally I said, hey, man, if you don't mind, turn around here and pay attention. I came over here to spend some time with you guys. Show a little respect, bud. I love you, man. Come on. He took his chair, and he grabbed it, and he turned it around, and he slammed it, and he looked me right in the face. And then the whole time I tried to share, he crossed his legs. He sighed. <sighs> I was irate. We walked out of that building. I went straight over to the director, and I was going to tell the director of that center, I want him out three hours, get him off the property. We've got people here that want to change. Get him out of here. I can't have him living here for six months. And the Holy Spirit dealt with my heart and said, don't. I didn't know why, but I felt the Lord said, leave it alone. I went home, and I didn't think much more about it. That afternoon, I got a call, and it was from that guy. And he said, Pastor Josh, they've allowed me to use the phone to call you, and he just started weeping. He said, I want to repent today. He said, man, I, I've known God in the past. He said, I opened a letter this morning. Mail came in last night, and I didn't get it. And this morning, I opened it right before the Bible study. And my wife let me know she's leaving me. She said, I'll never see my little girl again. He said, I'm sorry, Pastor Josh, but I was just angry. I was frustrated. I didn't want to have to look at other people in the group. He said, I just wanted to run out of that building and go in my life. And he said, but I know all you've done for the sinner. I knew who you were before you showed up today. He said, will you please forgive me? He said, by the way, thanks for not throwing me out. I said, that's the kind of guy I am. I'm just, you know. <clears throat> Godly, patient, kind. See, I knew how he's acting, but I didn't know why he was acting that way. And let me tell you this. Here's what I found. Every time you see a problem person, that's an opportunity to show the love of Jesus. You do know we're not supposed to fight fire with fire, right? Right? We're supposed to what? Overcome evil with what? Good. And bless those who curse us. And I find it opportunities to be a witness. I was on an airplane the other day, and a flight attendant, I fly quite a bit, and the flight attendant on the airplane, she had this elderly woman and this young guy, and they're fighting over who gets to sit in 27C because both their tickets said 27C. And this flight attendant was so frustrated, finally she begged the man to sit in the other seat. Everybody seemed to be happy but her. So I walked up, and she looked over at me and goes, 
Where's your seat? Take your seat, sir. She's being rude to me because of the argument these people have had. She's taking it out on me. Do you know hurting people hurt people? And you know sometimes people are taking something out on you that you didn't do, but you're paying for the hurt or the pain that somebody else has caused. And she's being rude to me, and I thought, well, we can't have that now, can we? I'm a witness, right? I've been called to share the love of Jesus. So I said, well, ma'am, my seat's 27C. I said, she goes like that, and that little old lady, she goes, Sonny, I'm telling you. I said, I'm just kidding. I'm right over here. I sat out. Well, the flight attendant's just looking at me like, why would you do that? But I'm already determined in my heart, I'm going to make her laugh, and I'm going to share Jesus with her before I get off this plane. I'm going to let her see that God can turn her day around, and then I'm going to tell her he can turn your life around. So when the flight gets ready to take off, I'm in the very back. She's sitting here, and you know, where the flight attendant sends. She buckles up, and the plane starts pulling off. And I said, everybody, I got a phobia, a phobia of flying. I said, I'm going to start screaming in a minute, but I normally black out at about 10,000 feet. I said, when I come to, I'll be fine. Everybody's kind of smiling until I let out the high. It was the highest pitched scream you've ever heard in your life. And I started shaking and screaming. That flight attendant, I looked over at her one time, and she's going, and she's trying not to look at me. And all of a sudden, I go, I'm just kidding with you guys. And when I said that, you should have been there. People started laughing, but still not the flight attendant. So we get planed off, and I got a Hispanic fellow sitting beside me. And he looked over at me, and he goes, so what do you do for a living? Why is that funny to you? So anyway, he said, what do you do? Maybe it's my impression of him. What do you do for a living? I said, I'm an arms dealer. I said, I deal in small arms, drugs. I said, since the, uh, since the economy fell, I do whatever I have to do to provide for my family. I said, I'm not a bad guy. Don't judge me. He never said another word. He just turned around and looked out his window. About five minutes later, she looked over at me, and she goes, are you serious? I said, of course I'm not serious. Do you think a drug dealer and an arms dealer would tell you? She goes, I was about to figure out how do we turn this plane around. Then she looked at me and she said, what is wrong with you? And I said, I, I don't know. And then she looked at the other guy and goes, I can't believe you didn't say nothing. He goes, the Hispanic guy, he goes, I was scared. <laughs> By the end of that flight, when I'm getting off, she grabs me and she goes, I want you to know I've been having the worst week of my life. And today was just the straw that broke the camel's back. And she said, but I want you to know I've had a blast you have brightened my day. She said, do you do this everywhere you go? And I was able to say, you know, since I met Jesus, I used to be a miserable person. I used to let things get me down. Said, you know, I had a lot of anger growing up, you know, and I said, but since I met Jesus, life's good. And then she said, tell me about that. And I had an opportunity to share. See, here's what I'm telling you. No matter what's going on in somebody's life, you don't have all the facts. Be careful when you're judging others. Jesus told the Pharisees, you judge according to appearance, but I judge with righteous judgment. Here's the second point. You with me real quick? Y'all bored? Everybody good? I'm having fun. Okay. Here's, here's the next thing. Nobody understands you like Jesus does. Not only was this woman misunderstood in her time, and I'm sure you got to remember after that second husband, the whole village said, you're defiled. Something's wrong with you. 
And everybody said something's wrong with her. She's defiled. But I, but I want you to understand this. When Jesus looked at her and said, go call your husband. I know a lot of times we read that and we're like, boom. He just called her out. He just told her her sin. I'm telling you, he just hit her right between the eyes. But that's not what he was doing. Because her husband's wasn't her sin. She couldn't divorce. If she committed adultery, she'd be dead. Here's what Jesus was saying to her. I want you to know I know your pain. I know what's happened to you. I know what's, what's, been, what's been done. Because, by the way, Jesus is promising her forever. Living water, you'll never thirst again. Do you know she's probably thinking, I've done had five men and my life promised me forever. And now I've got another Jew promising me forever. Oh, I've heard that before. And Jesus says, I'm not like every other man because they didn't understand you, but I understand you. And what they broke, I can fix. That's what I can do for you. You say, but she was living with a man. She had three options in that day. One was she could starve to death and live out in the elements. Two was she could turn to prostitution. Or three, she could trust man number six to hopefully make an honest woman out of her and fulfill his promise of forever. It wasn't her fault. She had no choice. I want you to know that maybe there are some people in here that are misunderstood. Maybe you've been wrongly judged. Maybe you've been hurt. Maybe you've been broken. Maybe you feel hopeless and despair. Maybe you're, you've just kind of given up. But here you are at church this weekend, just sitting here kind of empty. Here's what I want you to know. He can give you living water. He understands you in a way that nobody else does. And he can heal everything that other people have broken in your life. I know. Because the woman at the well is not just about women only. It's about male and female. I grew up in an abusive home. I've been beat with boat paddles and bull whips, and I've had my ribs bruised, my finger broke and turned around backwards. And that wasn't near as bad as the emotional abuse I went through. My mother got cancer. My father convinced me it was my fault and that I'd be the reason of her death. My dad would tell me at eight years old he never wanted me anymore. If it wasn't for your mama, I'd already gotten rid of you. You're a financial obligation. But then I came to a well, and I met Jesus. And he gave me joy. And he can give you joy. Not only did he heal me, he healed my dad. My dad's the best granddaddy you've ever seen to my three little girls. And my dad's one of my best friends. And my dad's a believer in Jesus Christ. And I've forgiven my dad and God has forgiven my dad. And it's all water under the bridge. I'm telling you, Christ is the answer. Can somebody give Jesus Christ a big old hand clap? <clears throat> And I'm landing the plane right here. He wants to give you an amazing story. He took a woman full of shame, a woman who was broken, a woman who had probably given up. And that's why she was out there in the middle of the, middle of the day out there in the hot sun. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but if I asked you, and for all of you that are students of the Bible, if I said, who did God use to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, what Gentile man did God pick to be an instrument to bring the gospel to, to the people of his nation? And those of you who know the Bible, you'd say, Cornelius. How's that for a name? Cornelius. But who did God pick? 
to bring the gospel to all of Samaria. Who did God choose? Who was it that God used to say to the Samaritans all of the racism and the prejudice and the remarks about you being a half-breed and all of the hate? I want you to know that Jesus doesn't feel that way. Jesus understands you and nobody else does. And the Jews may hate you, but Jesus loves you and Jesus offers you eternal life. Who was it that Jesus used to bring that message to the Samaritans? It was a woman that he met at a well. She is responsible for changing her city. And here's what I want to say to you. If Christ has given you living water, if, if you have drank of his salvation and you know God and he has healed what has been broken in you and he believes in you when nobody else ever believed in you, then the least you can do is share your amazing story with your city and with your friends and with the people in your neighborhood. It's the least we can do to say, come meet the Christ. He understood me when nobody else did. And he met a need that nobody else could meet. Don't be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Your story is powerful. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, and somebody help me out, word of their testimony. You go, I'm not a preacher. We don't need more preachers out in the neighborhoods. I'm not a theologian. We don't need one. Nobody understand what they're saying anyway. I'm not a scholar. You don't have to be. I can't memorize Scripture. I didn't ask you to. Do you have a story? And if Jesus is in it, it's an amazing story. And there are people all around you in your school and at your workplace and your neighbors, and they need somebody to just come and share with them. I want to introduce you to the person who changed me forever. Would you close your eyes and bow your heads with me? Thank you for being patient. I preached a little longer than I normally do, but but thank you for listening. If you're in here today and you say, Josh, I need living water. Maybe you're a man, maybe you're a woman, but you're like the person at the well and you're broken and you're hurt. And you need to believe again. You need to hope again. You need Christ to heal you. You need him to literally take your life and put your life back together. If you don't know, you'd go to heaven. What I'm saying to you is, friend, if you're not right with God, if there's an empty place in your life, and you want Christ to fill it because only Christ can fill it. Right now, with nobody looking around, every head bowed, every eye closed, would you raise your hand and say, Preacher, you're preaching to me right now. God bless you. Who else? I'm ready to get right with God. God bless you. Who else? God bless you. 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 All of you that are raising your hands, God bless you people. Here's what I want you to do. Church, could we pray a prayer with these guys out loud? as an encouragement. And you won't say this prayer to me, you'll say it to God, but let's pray it together. Lord Jesus, I believe that you died for me. You rose again. And you give living water. And you can heal me. And you can help me. I repent of my sin. And I confess you to be the Lord of my life. In Jesus' name, amen.